Throughout my 25 plus years of working in higher education, I've had the chance to build relationships with all types of creatives. Each one of these people has a story to tell that will go deeper into their mindset as a creative. Each episode, I will take you inside the mind of a creative as we weave together stories that led to overcoming doubt, tapping into motivations, and ultimately unlocking the creative psyche. Hello and welcome to The Undaunted Creative, a podcast that takes a closer look into the story behind success in the creative fields. Today's guest is DJ Cash Era, a DJ, a radio producer, and has built and branded DJ Cash Era into a powerful entity, both locally and nationally. We are going to discuss the path that has been built and how she has paved the way for others in the industry by incorporating inclusivity, kindness, and a wonderful dose of inspiration in everything she does. Welcome, DJ Cashira. Wow, thank you so much. That's an amazing intro. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, success and motivation can sometimes be crafted early in one's life. I follow you regularly on social media, and I've seen how impactful your family has been in supporting your endeavors. You know, I love the picture of friends and family celebrating your recent birthday. And in particular, was there a family member or two who introduced you to music early on? Absolutely. I would say my grandfather and my mother definitely uh, had the most influence bringing music around me. Uh, when I was a kid, my grandfather couldn't work because he was in a really bad car accident a couple years before I was even born. And it led to him having to get a piece of his brain removed. So it would cause seizures early on. And this was, of course, before science knew like what medicine to put someone on to limit how many seizures they would have. So he would have to stay at home and, you know, it kind of turns like free daycare. Don't you don't have to send me off somewhere. I can stay at home with my grandpa. And I love that instead. And we were just busybodies. We'd be outside and he had an eight track player. Wow. So this is how far back my music experience goes to where I even know what an eight track player is. And he would just pop them in the player and just let the music play all day. So I've heard some of the oldest songs ever. And I mean, a lot of these songs never even made it to cassette or CDs. So that was like my earliest experiences with him. And then with my mom, she loved CDs. And in the 90s, you know, you would get the, the visor cover that had the CD holder in it. She would buy so many CDs and pack them in so tight that if she would like break too abruptly or hit a turn too sharply, they would all come flying out into whoever was sitting in the passenger seat. So riding around with her, I became familiar with the covers of the CDs and the CD cases and the different trash and CDs. And my mom was the she was the person out of her friend group that would find artists and really listen to them before they became big names. So my mom loved Aaliyah in her early years, Tony Braxton, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, like all the deep cuts and the B sides of all these artists. So I'm constantly listening to R&B. Of course, she listened to hip hop and she was an 80s head, 90s head. So she was always just having different music playing in the car. And that really just gave me my own library of music when I started having an iPod. So I was downloading the music that she was playing more than anything else. And then, of course, whatever I hear on the radio got added in as well. But I still have a lot of the songs that my grandfather and my mom would show me as a kid to where now when I hear someone sample a song, I can catch it off rip because it's like, oh, I know this sample and I'll catch it before any of my friends will. So definitely my grandfather and my mom definitely had the biggest impact 
on me musically. So you were almost doing music curation at an early age because you had this access to this like full library of, of music. And, and I think that's really interesting because when we look at people who are involved in the music field, one of two things seems to always happen. They, they have people who support them at an early age and are like, you've got to listen to this or let me turn you on to that. Or you have others that go, why are you listening to that hip hop or that metal or what have you? So, you know, it's sort of like, you know, rebelling against, you know, what their parents, you know, didn't believe in them listening to. So for you, you had that foundation already built. So I wanted to ask you, as you got into high school, you know, you went to Crete Moni High School and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, athletics, big thing at Crete Moni. Um, Sort of describe a little bit of, of you as a high school student and were you able to develop any of your passions like with music? Were there clubs or organizations that you were involved with? Um, Cremoni was definitely very focused on academics and sports. So if you weren't like the star sports player or one of the top on the academic side, it kind of just got thrown to the wayside when I was in high school. And ironically enough, I wanted to study forensic science. So when I was in high school, that was what always is the motivator. Like I want to study forensic science and that's, that's what I wanted to, you know, really go into. My junior year, I joined a club called Ignition, and it was to mentor the incoming freshmen. I did that my junior and senior year, and they were supposed to have the star quarterback come out, and he was going to address everybody. Turns out he was very shy and had horrible stage fright. So we were running like 10 minutes behind, and my teacher was standing next to me, and she was like, we need someone to start this. Sarah, you go. And she just like pushed me out. So all the lights are on me and I'm looking at all the kids and I'm just like, all right, we're going to do this. So that's what, you know, kicked off me having to talk to loud groups, to large groups of people. I'm sorry. And it had me starting to think about radio. Like, okay, I I like this. I like being around people. And then my senior year, I went to one college visiting session and it was for all the honor students. You got to meet with different colleges all in one big school. It was great. I met with Notre Dame and, Columbia College and all these other schools. And one school that I sat on, I forgot, I forgot what school it was, but the first thing out of the advisor's mouth was, you know, whatever job you want to go into, make sure something that you can see yourself doing for 50 plus years. Wow. Because you can imagine whatever you decide to do, you'll be paying on your student loans for approximately 50 plus years. So make sure it's worth it. And when he said that, I don't know why that put into perspective. I was like, I don't want to deal with forensic science cases for 50 plus years. Like, I don't want to deal with cold cases and, you know, and death around me all the time for 50 plus years of my life. I can't imagine the toll it's going to take on me. And that's what made me really start thinking about Columbia. And then when I went to see the person that was representing Columbia, I loved his energy. So that was, that was the switch. But yeah, when I was at, Columbia, there wasn't really any, there weren't any classes that focused on music unless you were in band. And I, I don't play an instrument. I didn't then. I guess I really just was doing it all on my own while keeping up with my academics. 
you know, I, I think that's really interesting because in all transparency here, um, Casera and I work together, DJ Cashier and I work together um, at Columbia. And one of the things that really stuck with me, and I tell this story all the time to students, is the fact that it's really about being self-motivated. And I want to tap into that, but I want to give an example. Casera was in her, I believe it might have been her first semester or her second semester, and she had asked about working at the radio department. And I said, you know, I've got an opportunity here. Um, and it's three mornings a week to open up the radio station at 7 a.m. And lo and behold, she said, great. And I was thinking, you're coming from Crete Moni three mornings a week. And I've got to, and I tell this to students all the time. Not only were you on time all the time, but you wound up picking up other shifts. I mean, the, re- the dedication, the reliability was there. Where does that self-motivation come from? Do you look back to what you know your grandfather and your mother really instilled into you? Do you think that that was part of really, I mean, because not only with what you're doing now, but your academics, you were always a stellar student. I would say my mom was responsible for that. My mom, uh, I was the firstborn, and I feel like anyone listening, if you're a firstborn, you already know that you probably get put through the ringer the most. So yeah, my mom stayed on me about like academics, being on time, and if you want something, you really have to go for it. And you know, I already knew that being a woman, I'd have to prove myself more to get opportunities that male counterparts can get just from being a male. So with me, it was just the the need to succeed. I. I hate the idea of failure. I don't like coming up short or anything. So it was just between my mom and my own personal drive to try to be the absolute best I can be in anything that I try to take on. Well, we're going to talk a bit about DJing and how that sort of sprung up and it became this career for you as you you wound up building your path. I wanted to go back to and discuss with you a time early in your career as a professional. You were still a student at Columbia. And I would have to say at that point, you had checked off every single box. I mean, you did numerous internships in different industries and you were DJing, you were working for the department and you were also an on-air personality at WCRX, but I know you felt you were overlooked or felt unappreciated. And as a creative, what steps did you take to get the end results that you were seeking and to make sure that those people knew that you could not only do the job, but do it at a level that was above anyone else's pay grade, so to speak. But I wanna hear those feelings of like, feeling that unappreciated feeling, but being able to rise up, like, how did that happen? Was it having good friends? Was it, you know, under, you know, leaning on your family? I was definitely leaning on my friends because a lot of it turned into like questioning myself and self-doubt. My friends definitely lifted me up. Like, you know, it's, it's okay. Look at everything else you have going on. You know, you didn't get this, but look at what else you do have. Like, what's the next thing you can go for? And that's, that's how I moved through a lot of things. And I think that, that that situation in particular set me up for future endeavors that I face throughout the rest of my career. And even now, it's kind of like, why take the energy and focus on what I didn't get when I can take the same energy and turn it into, okay, what am I going to go for next? And also maybe put into perspective, like, okay, I didn't get this. So then this maybe just isn't for me. And that's okay. I have to accept that this isn't the path for me. Let me focus on what path really is for me. Well said, because I I think for a lot of creatives too, and especially someone like yourself who has so many different areas of interest that 
at times it can become a little overwhelming. But one of the things was that DJing for you, it, you sort of hopped right into it. But at first there was a little, you know, you were a little scared in terms of like jumping in there, right? In the beginning. Absolutely. Uh, I would say DJing found me. I took a class, the, the club DJ one with DJ INC, my first semester freshman year. And I, I just needed to get the 16 credit hours to keep my scholarship. So I took it and I fell in love with it. Like INC was amazing. Me and him are still in touch to this day. He's definitely like my mentor. Yeah, I just, I really liked it. And I was really nervous to even be going to college. I'm a first generation college attendee and college graduate. So it was just a whole new ballpark. And DJing for my freshman year just gave me an outlet because I would just go in the studio and I would practice. If I had free time in between classes, that's where I'd go and I'd practice. Living off campus, it was kind of like, what, what am I going to do to kill time? Because we didn't have the student center at that time. And there weren't many areas to go lounge in. So it was kind of like, okay, you know what? I got, I got an hour and a half to kill. I'm going to grab some food and go DJ. Who's going to go practice? And, you know, that turned into INC noticing that. And then freshman year, second semester, he approached me with the opportunity to start DJing a poetry slam formerly known as Louder Than a Bomb. And I was nervous. I was like, I I don't know how to DJ a poetry slam. I've never been to a poetry slam. What is this? I was very scared, but you know, I, I did it. And even that first day of doing that, I studied the DJ before me and he was their resident DJ. I followed him for one bout, which only took two hours. And then he stood up and was like, okay, you got the rest of the day. Good luck. And just left. And I was wow. sitting on stage with all these students from high schools looking at me and just, I had to do it. He threw me right in the flames, but it was one of my best experiences and one of my favorite gigs this day. I still work with the organization that puts it on. Well, I want to rewind about something you just said. First generation to attend and subsequently graduate college. When you were growing up, was this something that um, mom and grandfather, grandparents said, you're going to go to college or was it just no. something? No, 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 they no, they weren't pushing that. No, their thing was just to always like keep good on my grades. That was it. When I hit high school, there was never really any talk about college. It was kind of up to me. Like, do you want to go to college? Because they're they're advocates for trade school as well. Yeah, my mom, my mom didn't care what path I took or with any of my siblings. Um, it was more so just whatever you do, you, you need to be doing something productive. That was her thing. Do something that's productive and that you enjoy. That, that was always her thing. You know, I, I went to college and then you have my sister who went to cosmetology school and subsequently now she does, you know, the cosmetology thing, but she's also a model. And then my brother just graduated. He's not going to college at all. He's practicing to be a professional wrestler like WWE style. And she supports all of us the same. Um, and I didn't look at like, oh, I'm going to college. I'm automatically successful. That wasn't the thing. It was, you know, I'm in college to get to something that's going to make me successful. You know, a college degree doesn't just make you successful just by default. It's what you do with it and what you do after it. So I was just, yeah, I don't know. I was just bopping through college like any, like any teenager and early 20 year old would, you know, just going through the motions and doing what I had to do. And then just hoping that it would get me somewhere that I really, really enjoyed by the end of it. 
Well, that amazing work ethic that you have was so evident early on in your life, detailing your story and and when you came to Columbia and and obviously outside of uh, Columbia because you're a radio producer, you're a DJ, you're an entrepreneur. So you you start getting these gigs and all of a sudden you start getting offers for some of these bigger gigs, you know, like playing Pitchfork or playing Lollapalooza. What's going through your mind? You're you're actually on the bill for Lollapalooza, on the poster. I mean, all this stuff. What is going through your mind as you're setting up and you see this sea of crowd out there? Oh, man. Lollapalooza was awe-inspiring. Lala, actually, Lollapalooza came out of absolutely thin air. Um, I received a, a random email from this amazing photographer, Paul Octavius. And I had done one event with him and then I had gone to one of his workshops years ago. I mean, this was two or three years ago. And that was like the last time I had seen him. So in my mind, it's like Paul has no idea who I am. He's certified on Instagram, has all these followers, works with all these major brands and major artists. I'm the last person on his list. And he sent me an email and all it said was the subject line said Lollapalooza. And the body of the email said, um, I'd love to speak with you about some opportunities. Give me a call. And as soon as I got the, the email, I called him. I stopped whatever I was doing and I called him. And I was, I was actually in my house. And I called him and he was like, just having small talk, like, hey, how you doing? How you been? You know, how you been doing during COVID? All these questions. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I love the small talk, but what, <laughs> what is up with all the losing? So then he lets me know that he started his own ad agency and one of his clients was Lollapalooza. They gave him a stage three days in a row for an hour and a half slot. And he wants to make history and have drag performances at Lollapalooza, which has never been done before. And he wanted me to be the DJ for all three days if I was available and willing. Of course I'm available because it's <laughs> Lollapalooza. So that was it. Like that was the phone call. He sent me an email the next week, flyer included, contract, and that was it. I was set to go. And then the first day that I got there, I had just gone to Lollapalooza that Thursday just to walk around and get familiar with the area, the plotting of it, where the stage was, everything. And then my first performance was that Friday. And I got there super early for check-in. I was so nervous. Like my hands were sweaty all day. And we didn't perform until like six o'clock in the evening. I mean, I got there at like 12 noon, just out of anxiety and just anxiousness. And, you know, luckily, stage crew was amazing. They were super sweet and nice, very encouraging. They could tell that I was nervous. Of course, I'm the youngest person out of the group performing. And the sound crew, they set up my stuff. They took my laptop, my controller. They set all of it up for me, put it on the stage. So when the time came, you know, Paul came to me and he was like, okay, kid, like this, this is it. Go this for it. This is your chance. This is you your shot. Yeah. Stage was, was kind of empty. You had people sitting in the grass, just lounging around waiting. So I was the person that had to warm them up and get them excited and bring them closer to the stage. And they had me spend for like 10 minutes by myself up on the stage. And it felt amazing. And my best friend, Carmen, went with me. So she was standing off to the side behind the stage and in front of the stage, catching videos and pictures and everything. And we did the entire show. The sea of people was huge. I don't think I've ever played on a stage 
that had more people than that. And as soon as I walked off the stage, I took a deep breath and I started crying. I just, it was just tears flowing. And Carmen was, Carmen started crying. Paul started crying. Like everybody started crying. And it was, it was just so emotional. Cause it's like, I don't know of anybody that wakes up and just says, yeah, one day I'm going to play Lollapalooza. But I don't think Lollapalooza was ever something that I saw for myself as being attainable. Cause it's like, I've never seen anyone that looks like me at Lollapalooza. And representation is so important. Yes. So it's like, if I have no one to look up to, it's kind of hard for me to just be like, well, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like no one else did it yet, but I will. It's hard to have that energy when it comes to something as large as Lollapalooza. So it was, it was very emotional. It was very inspiring. And I, I feel like I'm still on a high from that. From that, let's talk about disparity. Um, one of the things that really bothers me is DJing. The legacy of DJing is it's it's very male dominated, right? And it's continued that way. Um, I look at some of the festivals that are are done, uh, especially local festivals and a lot of house music festivals. To be honest with you, um, is I look and they've got female performers or openly gay performers, but the DJs are all predominantly male cis DJs. And and again, that is something I know that you are very, um, you know, you're very outspoken about, and, and I agree with you 110% on it, is that there is a big divide um, in terms of, it, it's not only a divide with uh, more male DJs out there, but the lack of representation you spoke of, but letting that door open and not just open a little bit, but open to be equal to all. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. You know, it's definitely very male dominated. When I first, first started, um, it was from what I saw very white, cis, male dominated. And I, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've made it my personal mission to get as many black black people, women, um, non-binary and queer people into as many spaces as possible. Because I remember the feeling of trying to break into those spaces and having the hardest time getting there. So now that I'm in these spaces, if there's a day that I can't work an event, like with my residencies now, as soon as I realize that I can't DJ it, I'm recommending four or five other women DJs or four or five other queer DJs. That's that's really all that I book for my events. It's very rare that I will throw an event to one of my guy friends. And they understand that because they get it. They're like, you know what? No, like more women should be in these spaces. Plus, I feel like women DJs do it better. That's just, that's a fact. You know, yeah. if anyone disagrees, we can talk about it. You know, I have proof. <laughs> um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see. And I feel like over the years, it's been changing. I think more people are becoming aware that women DJs exist, that we work twice as hard as a lot of our male counterparts. Um, I've definitely been seeing it change to where now, you know, I walk into spaces and nine times out of 10, I will see a queer person, non-binary or, or, or a woman DJing. And I love that because I feel like before... You used to get like a shock factor from people like, oh, my gosh, there's a there's a woman DJing this. This is amazing. Now it's kind of like it's, it's more normalized. 
Yeah, definitely. And you look at a lot of the media industries, there is still so much uh, homophobia, you know, it's rampant. And, and there's still such a lack of understanding and acceptance of, of not only artists, but also, you know, actors, actresses, you know, across the board, creatives. So I wanted to get your stance on workplace culture and some of the things maybe you've done to try to change that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely agree. A lot of spaces are still very homophobic, very transphobic, anti-Semitic. Absolutely. Um, for me personally, I feel like it should not be up to those that are being harmed to change those spaces. So like, I don't think a trans woman should be responsible for calling out someone for transphobic, you know, views and thoughts. Cause that's just more harm ultimately to the trans person. I don't think it's up to a queer person necessarily have to call out someone being homophobic because it's more dangerous for them to do that. I think it's really up to other hetero people and supporters to come forward, to defend, you know, their, their trans friends, their queer friends, whatever have you. For me personally, I will call anybody out. I don't care. You know, I, I stand strong in what I believe in. And a lot of there's there's some spaces in Chicago that I just won't play at because I know they're very openly racist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever. And the way that I carry myself, any space that I'm in, whether I'm DJing or I'm not, whatever room I walk into, it's automatically a safe space, meaning it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, your background, anything you should be able to exist freely without judgment in that space. And the moment that I see anything other than that going on, you will get called out for it. And my friends know that too. And it's to the point now where if I don't catch it, but my friends will, they will call you out. But they'll make me aware of it for me to call it out. You quickly become outnumbered. And then anyone else who may have your same views, they're not going to be as loud as you think they will. They're also going to be quiet. I feel like that's been proven, you know, even during former President Trump's candidacy. You know, I feel like racism became so much more visible. And then as soon as Biden got elected and won, a lot of the support Trump signs went away. A lot of the all lives matter signs went away. And it's just that they hid their signs. They didn't change. They just don't feel empowered as much anymore. So. Do you find it difficult then when you come upon an artist that maybe has a questionable background? Do you find it difficult to put them in the mix, so to speak? No. Or, or, no, because you, you, it's that separation, right? It's like church and state sort of thing. I there... can separate the artist from, from the work. Got it. Um, I've been very vocal, very vocal about not playing R. Kelly. And I was vocal about it before the documentary came out before the different groups came out to mute R. Kelly. I stopped playing him years ago to the point that I don't have anything in my library by him whatsoever, be it my DJ software, my Apple Music, my Spotify, nothing. I have nothing that he has created with the baby. As soon as he made those comments, deleted everything from him out of my library. It's not hard at all. And I tell people that all the time. I still have people that want to request R. Kelly songs. And I tell them, like, no, I'm not I, I'm not playing his songs. I don't even have his song to play. 
And they look at me like, are you serious? He he gave us so many great songs. And I'm like, yeah, and he caused so many women so much pain and hurt. No, I, I have no reason to play him. I'm not missing anything. I don't know why you feel like you are either. I have no problem telling somebody why they shouldn't listen to that artist. No problem at all. It doesn't, it doesn't phase me. I haven't lost any bookings that I know of because of it. And if I have, it's because I wasn't meant to be there. You know, um, I've had, I've turned down certain events because of it. I've been asked, I think I turned down two different weddings. And one of the first questions they asked was, you know, do you play R. Kelly? And I told them, absolutely not. So I'm not the DJ for you. I will always put my values over the amount of money being offered to me. You know, so any if, if it doesn't feel right or it doesn't align up with what I stand for and what I value most in my career and what I've built up over the years, it's not meant for me. I want to wrap things up with this, which I, I think is just something that struck me right away when I saw these huge billboards. And I see how you've really taken your brand to the next level. Um, it's amazing. You know, the 312 billboards. And also, um, I know you have an, a new ad too. So, so tell us a little bit about that. And what are some of the future plans looking maybe into early 2022? For sure. Um, honestly, some of my biggest events have come from Instagram DMs. I run everything myself. I do all my own promotions. I learned how to make my own flyers. I hashtag everything. You know, when I was at Columbia, I actually took, you know, business marketing and strategy classes. So those classes I'm now using to help me get other opportunities inadvertently. And like, it's not like I pick a, a brand and I aim for them, you know, certain brands, of course, like certain brands, I'm like, I really want to work with them one day. And I just keep focusing on them. And then other events that I do, people that I meet, lead me to them like Nike, Adidas, whatever have you, Apple. I get to them over time. What else? Oh, I will be opening for Big Frida as a part of a Riot Fest after party. And then for Pride Weekend, which is going to be the first weekend of October, I will finally be DJing on one of the main stages at the Pride Festival, which has been a dream of mine since I was like 16 years old. So there will be another flow of tears. Uh, I will also be playing a set at, um, it's called Tip Fest, Teens in the Park Fest. So that one's going to be very emotional as we just lost Squeak Pivot, who is a member of Pivot Gang. He and I DJed Tip Fest last year together virtually. I've been asked to DJ a, a tribute set in his honor, playing some of his music and work that he's produced. Yeah, it, but it, it's, it's, it's events like that that hit very close to the heart and close to home that I very, I very much look forward to and that I'm always so honored to be a part of. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always up to something. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always here. I'm always outside. I'm very easy to reach. Absolutely. You know, and you always give back. You're a hustler. You're, you, you give back. You help others. You've helped the youth of today um, and, and fellow DJs, too. You're, you're opening so many doors for others, um, not only in the DJ world, but also in the radio world and, and being an entrepreneur. Can't thank you enough, DJ Kashira, for joining me on the Undaunted Creative. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Undaunted Creative Podcast. Undaunted Creative is a production of WCRX-FM in collaboration with the Career Center of Columbia College Chicago. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Colum Career. That's C-O-L-U-M-C-A-R-E-E-R. This episode was produced by Matthew Byrne. To hear more episodes of The Undaunted Creative, check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tom Joyce. Thanks for listening.